Would you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? George, may I prevail upon you to lead us. You take the brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 561, 561 in the brown.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, 
verses 1 through 17. That'll be page 1676 in your pew Bible. And when you come to that, please stand with us. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified and you bear much fruit, and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Will you take your hymnal once again and turn to number 526, 526? The brown. Sorry, I thought it said it.
Our scripture text this morning is John 14. We have been looking at the I am statements of Jesus, which are found only in John's gospel. Each one of these claims is meant to inform us a bit more as to the character and nature of the Lord. You see, God wants us to know him. He really does. There is mystery about God, to be sure. I think there will always be mystery about God, but nonetheless, it is the goal of God that his creatures come to know who he is, and most importantly, not just know about him, but to know him. Take some figure of importance. Let's say Governor Whitmer. Perhaps you have been following her career as she came up through the ranks of the party. You know what bills she was for, what she promoted, what she was against as a political leader. You know about her work with the Department of Education, her intercession with the school board of Detroit, the establishment that she worked with for the schools. Maybe you even met her one day at a political rally, got to shake her hand and talk with her a little bit. If anyone asks you, you could probably tell them much about the governor, maybe because through your study and attention to the political climate in the state, she has played a dominant role. But even with all that, if someone were to ask you, do you know Governor Whitmer? You would immediately perceive that the intent of the question was not, was not, do you know about the governor? But rather, do you know her? Are you friends? Have you been to her house to visit with her family? Does she call you for conversation? Do you do things together? Do you know her favorite dessert? her favorite restaurant, 
Have you shared a private conversation? And while at this point you might respond by saying, well, the governor has her own circle of friends and I'm just one of her supporters. I'm not close to her at all. Sadly, for many professing Christians, that is all they can say about their relationship to Jesus Christ. They're one of his biggest fans. They support what he stands for. They know a lot about what he taught, what he did. But in the final analysis, they don't know him. And while this might be acceptable with our governor because she is only one person living in a spatially restricted sphere with limited access, limited influence, but God is available to us all through his word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And many don't want to know him intimately. They want to know him at a distance. And only when they are hurting. For them, God is the band-aid they pull out of the medicine cabinet when they're cut themselves on some sin which has messed up their life and is about to swallow them completely. Then they go to God. May I say that Jesus Christ wants you to know him as his disciple. To love him as your Lord. To obey what he has taught because it is good for your family. It is good for your own soul. And not to know him is your fault. It is your decision. And many decide to keep him on the peripheral, on the side, and at arm's length. Okay, Jesus, you can be there, over there somewhere, or over there somewhere. And that is why many people's lives are in shambles. They are users of God. But they do not love him as the friend, as the brother, as the savior that he is. The claims Jesus makes in these I am statements of John's gospel we are studying are revelations about himself which are the basis of controversy and rejection by the people of the world, but that but they are the very inner things that Jesus wants his disciples to know about him and enter into with him. This is all the more the case in these final two statements, both of which are found in Jesus' teaching with us, with his disciples, in the upper room, the night of his betrayal, his arrest, and his trial. 
It's as though the world, including Judas, who had left the group to betray Jesus, it's as though the world and Judas and people like him are locked out. They're locked out. Only the true disciples heard these teachings. The inner circle of Jesus, earthly, spiritual family, were present for these words and no one else. They are taken into Jesus' confidence. Judas is gone. The religious leaders are gone. The crowd is gone. The eleven remain. They are the true friends of Jesus. These are dangerous times for them as well. But they are there because their Lord is there. Later in fear, it's true, they will scatter for their lives. But they will collectively gain their composure. They will come back in repentance and in renewed faith. And that's the difference between a Judas and a true disciple. They would rather be with the Lord they know and love and risk loss of life than to be with the people of the world who keep their distance from Jesus as they travel the broad road that leads to destruction. This brings us then to this powerful I am declaration in John 14 and verse 6. By the way, the personal pronoun is duplicated in the Greek. So it reads this way. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Context, as I already mentioned, this teaching was taught by Christ in the upper room with his, which his disciples had secured for Jesus and themselves to celebrate the Passover together one more time. John 13, verse 1. Judas was not present. He had left to complete his intent of betrayal. John 13, verse 30. Jesus then begins to address in a sobering way the reality of his upcoming arrest and trial and his execution. He does this at first by discussing that he's going away, verse 33. And they cannot come along. Oh boy, there's a newbie. You're going away and we can't come? Verse 36. Now, Peter thinks that he has the wherewithal to follow Jesus anywhere, even to the point of laying down his life. He's figured it out. Why, Jesus is talking about being executed. Well, I can do I can do that with you. I will follow you. You can read about that in Matthew 16, verse 22, if you want the details. 
You know, disciples sometimes speak when they should be quiet and listen. Peter was a talker, not a listener. And it got him into trouble many times. Maybe you're the same way. I don't know. If Christ is the Lord of his peoples, lords teach and rule and govern. That's what lords do. And disciples learn and obey and submit. That's what they do. And anything more on our part shows a rebellious spirit, or at least one of unfounded, ignorant pride. We think we know best how to rule our lives, and we think we know the solutions to life's problems. But sin has clouded our judgment, and if we know that about ourselves, then we will be willing to heed the God over us, who knows all things, and if you do not trust Christ like that, then it's doubtful that you really believe in him as you say you do. Unfortunately, Christians do not always do their best thinking when they're upset. I don't think anybody does. And in our text, the disciples are upset. Verse One, they're troubled. How do we know? Because Jesus says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. These men are upset. And may I say, they have good reason to be. Firstly, Jesus has just revealed that one of their very own inner circle of disciples is a traitor. But the disciples do not have a clue as to who it is. And that sets them to wondering about mm, each other. They start asking, is it I, is it I, is it I? Does that tell you how sneaky and deceitful Judas has been? Not one disciple says, Aha! I know who he is. And remember, Judas has already left the group. He's out selling Jesus off. So no one says, That's why Judas left. That's where he's gone. That's what's going on. They don't have a clue. In fact, the scripture says the disciples thought that Jesus had dismissed Judas to go out and buy provisions for their Passover supper. He was not suspected at all of treachery. But they're upset about this. And they start wondering about each other. Secondly, Jesus himself is troubled in spirit. We read that in chapter 13, verse 21. And as common among friends, when one party is upset, that upsets the other parties as well, because we don't like to see each other in distress. 
The disciples are not in the know yet, but something they know. Hey, why is Jesus so upset? He is distressed. Now they're getting distressed, and they're getting upset. I don't know. What do you I don't know. Yeah, he does seem a little discouraged, frustrated. And thirdly, they're upset because Jesus has announced that he is going away, and the ones who love him most cannot come along. What? What? These men had been with Jesus since day one of his public ministry. They've been like his shadow on the wall. Where Jesus went, they went. What he did, they did. But now they are told that Jesus is going away and they cannot accompany him. Wow. How upsetting. Jesus, this is something, this is really something new here. What, what's going on? Finally, Peter, the strong one in the group, the rock, the one on whom the other disciples relied to be their leader and spokesperson, this same Peter is foretold by Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. Say what? Lord, even if they're going to take you and execute you, I, I will die for you. I, I will die with you. No, you won't, Peter. You're going to deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times. So you see, there is enough here in these four things to upset anybody and to shake them down to the very core of their being. No wonder Jesus says to them, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust me. And from what follows in terms of Jesus talking about going away to the Father's house to prepare a place for the disciples with the promise that he will come again to receive them to himself, it is clear that the disciples have another concern in their minds. They are thinking hard on Jesus' words about him going away and they not being able to accompany him. And they are thinking, what's going to happen to us? For three years now, we have left family and homes to learn of Jesus, to be with him night and day, and now it has all come down to this? He's leaving us? And we're to do what with our lives? 
I believe that some of this uncertainty we see here, even after the resurrection of the Lord, and Peter says to the group of disciples, I'm going fishing. John 21, verse 3. And six of the other disciples said, we're going with you. Really? There was in Peter some uncertainty as to his role now that he had denied the Lord as predicted was there something the lord wanted him to do he didn't know what to do oh but one thing he knew he knew fishing i can do that and it appears that he and the other six disciples with him were falling back on their old trade The Lord is leaving us. There's nothing left for us to do except to go back to our fishing trade and pick up where we left off. And it was on that occasion that Jesus took Peter aside and told him three times that if Peter really loved him, as he had just confessed, he would forget the fish and feed the sheep. Now, making a living as a fisherman was an honorable trade, but teaching God's people was more necessary, and not all men can do that. Peter, I need you here, not there. So in coming to our text this morning, Jesus assures his disciples that although they cannot come with Jesus now to where he is going, the Father's house... They will, follow, they will follow later, verse 36. And what is more, they should not look upon his departure as the Lord deserting them. Don't look at it that way. No, he is going away to do a work, to prepare a place for them in glory, in the Father's house, that they may be where he is, verse 3. And with his going, he promises to return to them, to receive them personally. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. That was precisely their fear. They thought Jesus was abandoning them at a time in their life when they needed him all the more. Brethren, how, how do you calm people's hearts when they are agitated in spirit and they aren't exactly thinking straight? When people's emotions are running away with their behavior and their brain is on idle, how do you help them? Jesus did two things. Number one, firstly, he told them to stop emoting and start trusting.
This is in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And this tells us that we let ourselves become upset at times. We do not check our unbridled emotions. We become upset and we allow the things that upset us to continue on. We add fuel to the fire by allowing our minds to run down rabbit trails which have nothing to do no bearing at all on the circumstances at hand. But there they go. How could Jesus leave us in this crucial hour? We have devoted our lives to him, and now he's deserting us when we need him. Is that love? I mean, is that compassion? How can he do that to us? Now the disciples are thinking evil thoughts, which should have never been entertained. Now, I'm not saying that they thought these thoughts, because I don't know, but it is at least plausible because we do the same thing. We allow our emotions to distort our reasoning ability. We allow our feelings to dictate our actions. And feelings are never a safe guide for determining conduct. Never. They're too fickle. They're too tied into the circumstances. Doing right when we feel good, doing evil when we feel bad. Yet the test of a true disciple is to trust God and to think well of God when we go through the bad times. As did Job. Read the book of Job. And boy, did he have a rough time, not only because of the trials God allowed him to endure at the hands of Satan, but because his wife and his friends were no help. Why don't you curse God and die? Get it over with, said his wife. And Job told her, you're talking like a silly woman. And that term... You're talking like an unbelieving woman. You're talking like a woman that has no faith. You know, brethren, anyone can believe in God when the world is rosy and all is well. We think God is blessing us, and so we're happy to believe him. But let pain and suffering come into our lives or if not sorrow, maybe just difficulty, a hard road to travel, to be faithful to God. And suddenly, we're not so sure we believe that God has our good interests at heart. When people go this route, there is a lot of self-pity They are feeling sorry for moi, for themselves. How do we handle that? Well, you do as Jesus did in our text. 
you tell them outright, stop it right now. Stop it. You're just emoting, and it's getting you into trouble. In the case of the disciples, Jesus proceeded to explain to them that they that he was not deserting them. But he was going away for the express purpose of sending another comforter, verse 16, who would be with them forever. We know that to be the Holy Spirit. He was going away to prepare a place for them to be with him and the Father forever. So, he does have their best interests at heart. He is concerned about them. He does care for them. So stop the pity party right now And trust me. Brethren, we do people no favor by allowing them to continue in their wrong thinking, which, of course, becomes the basis for wrong behavior. You need to be bold enough to tell people, stop it. Stop it right now. This is no time for irrational, sentimental babbling. Rather, it's time to put into practice all you know about God and exercise that faith you say you have in Him. So I don't know if I can do that. Well, I'll tell you what. If you don't do it, they're going to continue to sin against God and suffer the consequences of that. All because you didn't want to tell them otherwise. Brethren, disciples need to hear They need to hear this stuff. Disciples need to be challenged to believe, to trust. Because there's an enemy of our soul that comes right along there and whispers in our ear, see, Jesus doesn't love you. God doesn't care about what's going on. Look what's happening in your life. And he feeds the unbelief and the criticism and the skepticism. The second thing Jesus did to calm his disciples was to assure them, verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way. Have you ever been lost? Maybe you were out in the woods on a hike and you got too deep into the forest. You couldn't figure out how to get back. Or maybe you were on a lonely road at night where you could not see too well. You made a few wrong turns and the road narrowed to a cow path in a farmer's field. 
I tell you, it's very disconcerting to be lost. That happened to Don and I one time when we were coming back from Pennsylvania. They were shutting down 24 because of a severe truck accident that had flipped over and there were police cars everywhere. You had to get off. Didn't matter where you were, you're getting off at this exit. Okay, so we got off at that exit and we started, where do we go? She quick grabbed the map out of the glove department and, and we started looking at some routes that we could take. Well, let's, let's go on that road there and see where that goes. We ended up in a, in a farmer's field. She says, well, this isn't right. I said, no, we're, we're in a cow path here. So we backed out, turned around, went back down. We determined, okay, no more dirt roads for us. It's got to be a paved road. All right. So we got a found. We went further west to a paved road. And it was wonderful. It took us up to Flushing. Oh, well, at least knew where Flushing was. And that regular reference to LaPierre. So we got on I-69 and we were able to get back home. It's very disconcerting to be lost. Spooky. You hope you have the good sense to find your way, but you're not quite sure. And part of the disciples' dilemma was that uncertainty, that if Jesus was leaving them and they were to follow later, well, I don't know about that later part, verse 36, would they know the way to go to rejoin him? To put it in today's vernacular, were they really saved? Would they make it to glory? Would they find God the Father in peace? And it is here that Jesus assures them, you know the way to the place where I am going. Translation, you won't get lost in this journey because you know the route. Have you ever said to somebody, you can do this. You can do this. You know this inside and out. You've done it a hundred times before. There's no reason to be afraid. And regardless of the subject that you're discussing, you know enough about the person to know that their fears are unfounded. They have what they need to know to accomplish the task. You know, sometimes this is all people need to help them over a hump. They just need someone to remind them of what they already know and what they already believe. This is even more important when we traverse the unknown. When my mother was dying, and it was obvious, 
she wasn't going to make it. I said to her, Mom, it's okay. You have trusted the Lord all of your life. You need to trust him now. And he's going to see you through this final journey. Dying is done alone, folks. You know that? Unless you have the Lord as Savior. Now when Thomas heard Jesus' assurance that the disciples knew the way to the place where he was going, he was skeptical. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Verse 5. And you see, Thomas' question is based on something related to Jesus' words, but not identical. Jesus asserted that the disciples knew the way, and Thomas is saying, in effect, you know that would be true, Lord, if we just knew where you were going. But since we do not know your destination, it's impossible for us to figure out the way to get there. There was a lot of self-confidence behind that statement. We're the same way. We think that if we're just given the necessary facts in a problem, we can figure out the solution. But in the spiritual realm, that is not faith at all. Jesus had just told them, trust in God, trust also in me. Thomas wasn't trusting. He was trying to reason his way out of his fears. And he hasn't been a very good listener because Jesus had told all the disciples where he was going. Look at verse 2. I'm going to my father's house. Whoa. And what is more, no amount of self-effort will get Thomas or any of the other disciples there. They need a savior for that. And it is here that Jesus states his claim. Thomas, you are uncertain as to the way. You say you don't know where I am going and how to join me there. Thomas, I, double pronoun in Greek, I, I am the way and the truth 
in the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. While this was said to the inner disciples, it's important to see that there is a universal reality to what Jesus says here. No one comes to the Father except through me. Indeed, if anyone expects to see God, the Father, in peace, they must come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not share this position with anyone or anything else. It is an exclusive claim, but observe some of the depth of what he is telling these men and all of us. What's that? While the Lord stresses that he is the way to God, his emphasis is that he is more than a pathway, even more than the only route, though he's, those things are also true. He is saying more than that he is some intermediary who gets people from point A to point B. No, he is not a temporary figure in people's spiritual lives, as though to say that once people have traversed via him from the material world to the spiritual, he becomes unnecessary and obsolete. Kind of like, I'm a bridge over troubled water, but once you get over the troubled water, you don't need the bridge anymore. No, rather is our Lord saying that he is so uniquely the way that believers find their destination immediately when they find him. They arrive at God the moment they step on the way to God. They do not find Jesus and then at a later point in time find God the Father and everlasting life. The only thing they wait for is the Father's house, but not God the Father's presence or power. This is what all this discussion is about in the ensuing verses where Jesus explains to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen what? The Father, verse 9. And again, verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So for our hearts this morning, it's important to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in total. That in to find Christ is to find God. And to have Christ as Savior is to arrive at the destination which all men say they seek. Heaven is where Christ is. And without him there is no heaven. There's no mansion. There's no eternal dwelling place. We find the Father as soon as Jesus finds us. Verse 7. If you really knew me, he says, you would know my Father as well. And from now on you do 
know him and have seen him. This is heavy-duty theology. How deplorable and blinding it is for men, for other religions of the world to talk as though they know the way to God when Jesus makes this exclusive claim. They teach about God as though they knew him, yet all the while rejecting Jesus Christ as his son. Their teaching is on a God who does not exist and on a salvation that saves no one. It is a figment of their imagination to believe that they know the way to God while denying Jesus' deity. 1 John 2, verse 23, John writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Wow. Again, 2 John chapter 1, verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That is a charge to us. You can't keep hopping from church to church, from teacher to teacher. you got to find one that teaches the truth of God's word. And when that is the case, you stick with it if you want to be solid in your faith. And by I say that this goes for any truth you are seeking, whether one is seeking for the truth on child-rearing, or husband and wife relationships, or the truth on employer-employee responsibilities. Even in the so-called sciences, such as geology, biology, zoology, or any other kind of ology, the truth in all of these areas and more begins with God. So on whatever God speaks, his word is the truth. And it is to be accepted by us as believers and acted upon. You cannot have one foot in the philosophies of this age and the other in the Bible and say that you believe in Christ. As Jesus put it to his disciples, so I put it to you. Trust in God, trust also in Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. If you love the Lord, then the word on whatever topic will take precedence over anything you may read or study on the same subject from men. Jolene graduated from the University of Michigan. Before her was Jess. Before Jess was Jared. If your children go to a secular university, it is incumbent upon them as Christian young people not to buy into everything the professor teaches. 
God gives discernment to his people to know the difference between truth and error when they hear it. Thankfully, my children knew God through Jesus Christ, else they could not have known what to retain and what to discard from such a godless university. Doctors of philosophy or doctors of the sciences do not impress God. And they should not impress us either. Why? God tells us. Where's the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. So God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20 and following. To miss God, to miss God and one's wisdom is to be the biggest fool there ever is. To know how to build bridges across ravines and yet not know how to avoid the pit of hell is fatal. To raise your children to be worldly wise and self-assertive through lack of discipline may seem the loving course to go, but God says, Proverbs 13, verse 24, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he will love him. He who loves him is careful to discipline him. In all knowledge, we're to begin with God's word first and use it as the grid, or maybe I could say the cheesecloth, through which we pour all other so-called knowledge. Whatever the grid catches, we're to discard as false and to determine to order our lives without that information. Whatever man has discovered that does not conflict with the word of God, okay, we count that as God's grace to his creatures. And we may employ that knowledge to God's glory for our good. But we're never to think that God does not know best or that God does not know the most about any given topic, any topic. You will find that Jesus Christ is the living truth of God and if you follow him, you will find life indeed. Have you found God in your search for spirituality? That void in your life, that gnawing emptiness, was designed by God for himself. Without God, you will never know true happiness and peace. Without Jesus, you'll never find God. Thus all the religions of the world struggle to know what they cannot and the devil is happy about that. But through God's word we learn the way, the truth, and the life. 
was God's very own son. And the son says, come. Let us sit down under this tree. And I will tell you about my father. But people will go every other pattern, every other place other than Christ. And the Bible has a lot to say about what God thinks of those who discard and reject his son. Think of it. God sent his son that we might become knowledgeable of him, the Savior. So to disown the son is to disown the very way that Jesus says he is, the way, the truth, the life that could be yours. Think on it. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'll bless it to our hearts. Oh, how we enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ and think about how wonderful and magnificent his role was in the salvation experience. That the Father trusted him with our souls. Wow. That means we can trust him. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us to know him in saving power for the glory of God and our good, we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is 154 in Trinity.
We'll take a 10-minute break and regather for the Lord's table. We're dismissed for 10 minutes. Come back when you hear the music. Thank you.